last week we talked about the Imago Dei and what it means to be created in the image of God. And we basically looked at the implications of um, that God's created all people, therefore all people have value. And so this week we're looking at I am a child of God. So here's what I'm going to do just on the front end, uh, just for about 30 seconds. I want you to think about your dad. So 30 seconds, think about your dad. What, what comes to your mind when you think about your dad, your father? Is it positive? Is it negative? So, so when, like when I say dad, when I say think about your dad, chances are each person in this field has a different filter by which they hear that term. See, to, to say the word father, it, that, that word father is, is a loaded word. It's, it's pregnant with meaning. For, for some of you, I say God as father, right? So we're, we're talking about I, I am a child of God. That is my identity. That's what we're talking about today. So to say I am a child presupposes that you have a dad, right? And if we're saying I'm a child of God, that presupposes that you are a child of God. But when I say dad, when I say father, you, you automatically take that word and, and something comes to your mind. See, we, I, w- I would do you a disservice this morning if, if we jumped right into talking about what it means to be a child of God if we didn't first recognize the fact that for a lot of you, statistically, you, you may have grown up in broken homes. You, you, your dad may not even been around. I mean, there, there are all kinds of hurdles to understanding um, God as father. I mean, perhaps you were abused by your dad. Uh, perhaps you grew up and, and your dad it just, just made you feel like you were a mistake. You, you weren't supposed to be around. Maybe he was absent. Maybe you're like, I don't even know my dad. Not a clue. Uh, all I know is what my mom says. That's all I know. And, and so we, we, have to be, we have to be honest with ourselves this morning. And, and we really have to recognize the fact that if if you were coming from a place, because some, some of you may have a great dad, and, and he pictured God the Father wonderfully to you. That, that is, a, that is a, a gift, and that's a, that's a blessing, right? You should text your dad and say thank you for doing that. It's, it's not, that's not normative for us. And, and so before we jump in, I, I, ju- I just want to, um, I just want to, like, as your pastor, I want to recognize the fact that I, I know that for some of you, this idea of dad is difficult and it's hard. I, 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 wanted, to read, um, I wanted to read this, this passage of scripture. Uh, this is Jeremiah 30, 31, 9. In, in a lot of the scriptures you have, and then also all my notes are on that QR code, so you can go, um, you can go there as well. Normally, I would encourage you looking at your phone while I, I teach because uh, I don't know what you're doing, um, but I'm going to trust you. We're going to have an agreement of trust in this moment. So if you want to do that, you can do that. But um, he, here's a great thing. God has not left us to figure out what type of dad he is. God, God hasn't left us to figure out what kind of dad he is, what kind of father he is. He hasn't left that ambiguous. It, it's not subjective. L- listen to what the Israelites understood God as father is. This is um, Jeremiah 31.9. Uh, I'll just read it for it. It says, uh, they will come with weeping, but I will bring them back with consolation. I, I will lead them to wells filled with water by a smooth way 
where they will not stumble. So this is talking about God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament. In, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And so uh, there, this, this passage in particular, Jeremiah is communicating on behalf of God and saying, God's going to take care of you. I know you're in exile. I know you've been removed from the promised land. I know that nothing feels as if it should fill. And so a part of Jeremiah's promise in communicating to them how he's going to uh, make them feel better, how he's going to ease their anxiety, how he's going to bring about trust again, a part of that passage, he says, this is what God says. They'll, they'll come with weeping, but I'll bring them back with consolation. I'll lead them by wells filled with water, by a smooth way where they will not stumble. And then you know what he says there? He says, for I am Israel's father. So, so look what he does there. So Jeremiah the prophet associates God's care for them, that he'll lead them by wells filled with water, that he will uh, cons- uh, consolation, he'll, he'll give them consolation. He associates that with what? With God's fatherhood, with God's goodness. See, see Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus' primary way of, identif- of identifying God was what? Was with father. This, now, he, he addressed uh, God in, in many different various forms, but his primary way that he would address the God, I want to say the Father, is the Father. Two, two examples uh, of this. So we see in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Like, we, we want to know how to pray. We want to know how to talk to uh, God. So will you teach us how to do that? And, and do you, if you know the passage, you know it. But, but Jesus says what? He says, this is how you begin. Our king in heaven, our judge in heaven, our, uh, the all-consuming one in heaven, this is how you begin your prayer. Is that how he begins his prayer? Is it when he's teaching them, what does he say? He says, when you begin to pray, you pray this way, our father in heaven, our father in heaven. See, Jesus primarily associated God with Father uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to go uh, pay the payment for humanity's sin. And in this, this most, one of the, uh, like, pre-crucifixion, right? Other than the crucifixion, one of the most, Jesus' most anxiety-filled moments. And he's, and he's in the garden, and he's praying, and do you, do you know what he's saying when he's praying? He's saying, Father, if this cup would pass, let it be. But if not, but, but if not, like if, if this is your will, I'll do it. And he says what? He says, Father, Father. Sinclair Ferguson says this about understanding that God's our Father and we are children. He says this, the notion that we are children of God his own sons and daughters is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship or daughtership to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. The apex and the goal of redemption is that we would be God's sons and daughters. Not, not God's workers, not God's laborers, God's sons and God's daughters. Apex of creation. All right, let's get into it. So Romans chapter eight. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. Um, we'll start in. Uh, we'll start in verse 
12. So 12 through 17, Romans 8, 12 through 17. Again, this is in your notes uh, on, on the phone. So this is what it says. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But, it, but if by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Verse 14. For, or you could translate that because, like the Greek there is actually because, so it says for or because all those led by God's spirit are who? Are God's sons and daughters. If you did not, re- so for you, verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. So fear, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so here's what Paul says in this passage. He says that we have been adopted as God's people. Now, adoption was an interesting thing because when we tend to think about adoption, we tend to think about uh, a family bringing in uh, a baby or a child and, and bringing that, that baby in. Well, uh, adoption wasn't a Jewish practice. So Paul is clearly talking about the, the Greek practice of adoption. And in, in the Greek practice of adoption in Rome, in the Greco kind of Roman world, the way that adoption worked is typically you adopted an older male who would then become the heir of your kingdom, who would then carry on your name. So it wasn't, adoption wasn't such a, I'm going to grab this kid and adopt them and bring them in. It was, I need, it was typically a political move. So like Nero was adopted. <laughs> Nero. So Nero is a king in the, the early times of the church. He actually was adopted over the, he was actually put in leadership um, over the biological children of the king of that day. Because he's like, I like Nero better. And so it was really a political move where they would, they would adopt someone and then they would have this person, they would say, okay, you're going to carry on my legacy. You now, are you hearing this? You now have the responsibility to carry on the heritage of my name. That was adoption. Now you got all, you got all the benefits of that. You got, you got the inheritance. There's a couple of things actually that, that would happen uh, when, when you were adopted. So there are a couple of things here that would happen. Uh, first thing, all your old debts and legal obligation was paid. So when you got brought in and you were adopted by a, a wealthy, a king or, or a wealthy family that wanted you to carry on, all your old debts and legal obligations were paid. That striking home? I mean, that's good news that your debts are paid. So when you're adopted and brought in, your debts were paid. They were taken on. Second thing is you, you got a new name and you were, you were instantly heir of all that the father had. So you got a new name. It's like your name, now you're taking on my name. You have my name. So whatever, whatever your old name meant, whatever your old heritage meant, whatever, whatever that was, I'm giving you now a new name. You have my name. You're mine. Third thing that we know happened uh, is the father essentially became liable for all of the son's actions at that moment. The father, once he adopted that adult male, 
then became liable for that adult male's actions. Why? Because that, that now adopted child is responsible for representing rightly the family that has adopted him. So now he's liable. The, the fourth thing that we know happened is that the, the new son now had obligations to honor and please the father. So now his primary responsibility, because he was adopted, is to honor and please the father that now adopted him. This was, this was a, a reality of, of what happened here when you were adopted, again, in the Greco-Roman world. So, so when Paul says this, because we want to contextualize, right? We always got to think about, we have to remove, we're in 2020 uh, in the middle of Boston. So Paul wasn't imagining an audience in 2020 listening to him talk about his writing. So we got to put it in that context, right? So they hear adoption, they hear these things. They understand that this is the practice of adoption. It was a, it was a, it was a good thing. Okay, so a couple of things here with adoption. A couple of observations that we want to make as we think about this idea of being children of God and adoption. Thought number one, this is in your notes. There was a time, so if God adopts us into his family and we become children of God, there was a time where we were not children of God. We weren't children of God. We had a, we had a great discussion in my house church uh, this past week. And um, do you like how I threw that in there? How, I'm in my house church. You should be in a house church. All right, so we had a great discussion in my house church. It was full of the intimacy, and I left full and healthy, healthier than if I wasn't in one. All right, so I was in my house church, and we were talking about um, we were talking about this idea of, of becoming uh, a child of God. And, and I think there's a, there can be a thought out there that everybody is God's children. Maybe you've heard that before. Everybody's God's children. Well, that, that's not biblically true. Now, every, now, what we talked about last week is everybody was created by God. So therefore, everyone has value and has worth, but not everyone is a, a child of God. Well, how do, how do we know that? Okay, well, let's... Let's look at the scripture here, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, says this. Listen what, he, listen what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in verse 1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So that was true of everybody. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. So here it is. Here's he's going to identify what we are before we're adopted by God. Before we become a child of God, this is what we are. Look at um, the second part here of verse 3. So he says, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Did you see that? So Paul says that before we're adopted by God, before we're brought in by God, that we are what? That we are children under wrath. That, that's, 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 not to, that's not a child of God. See, before we're adopted in through Jesus, and we'll talk about it in a second, we, we have to recognize that we were children under wrath. That honestly... It's what makes the news that we're children of God so good. Is that we were children of wrath. That we were children 
uh, carried out um, by our fleshly desires and our passions. That's what we are before we come to know Christ. We're carried by our passions and our flesh. That's what we are. And it makes us children of wrath. So there was a time, first observation, there was a time where we weren't children of God. It's a really important thing to grasp because you hear it a lot, but it's not true. Second thing, the second thing that we know uh, that we get from this idea of adoption is that the relationship is solely based on the legal act of the father. So think about adoption for a second. Anytime you adopt, a, the adoption happens, who is, the, who is the primary, doing the primary act, the legal act of adopting? It's the parents. It's the father, the mother. They're, they're the one that has moved this into, they're moved this into to motion. They're the one who, who, who got this thing started and going. It wasn't, it wasn't based on, uh, it wasn't based on the merit of the child. Uh, it wasn't, you know, if anything, the father is taking on the responsibility of caring for this child that they therefore didn't have at one point. And so to say that we're adopted, this is really good news. It's to say that we're adopted by God, that we've received a spirit of adoption, is to say what? The Father loves you. That the Father has taken the initiation to legally bring you in. That it's, that it's His act to, to bring you in. I mean, we, we see this... Um, we see this uh, in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, building on that thought that we just looked at. Um, verse, verse 4, it says, but, so, so it moves from children of wrath, as, as others were also, to, to verse 4, where it says, but, so there's a conjunction, so there's a turn, right? That conjunction, but it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Uh, John chapter 1, 12 through 13. So how do we become children of God? Right? Is, it, is, it, is it based on us or is it, is it based on the, the, the work of God? It says this, but to all who did receive him, he gave them what? The right to be children of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. He says, those who believed and those who received, not of the will of man, but the will of God. See, he is, this is great, this is great news. He did the work to legally bring you into his family. It was based on his initiation. J.I. Packer says this, Adoption, by its very nature, is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. Martin Luther said this, A son is an heir, not by virtue of high accomplishments, but by virtue of his birth. He is a mere recipient. His birth makes him an heir, not his labors. His birth makes him an heir, not his labors. 
continuing on, in exactly the same way that we obtain the eternal gifts of righteousness, resurrection, and everlasting life, we obtain them. This is so good. He says, we obtain them not as agents, but as beneficiaries. We are the children and heirs of God through faith in Christ. We have Christ to thank for everything. For everything. So, so the Father has, has initiated the process of bringing you in. And then scripture tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, is, is the means by which we receive our adoption as children of God. So, so how do we become children of God, right? That, that's the question. So if it's, not, if it's not, I become a child of God based on my labors, if it's not, as, as Luther says, I become a child of God because, of, of, because I'm an agent for him, I'm a, I'm a worker for him, then, then, then how do we do it? It's Jesus. Jesus is the means by which we receive the adoption to become the children of God. It's all based on Jesus. He, he was the one who did this. Romans 5, 8 says this. It says, but God proves his own love for us. Right, so good father. He's a good father. He's a good right father. I don't know what your father was like, but God has not left us to guess what type of father he is. He's a good father. He's a loving and kind father and a generous father, a consistent father, not an absent father, not an abusive father. Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still children under wrath, while we were those who were not pursuing him and living in rebellion and doing our own thing, says God loved us and, and pursued us and went after us. And, and so may, maybe, you're, maybe you're here this morning, and I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you don't identify yourself as a follower of Christ. May, like maybe you're just kind of here and, and you're hanging out and you're enjoying the space and you're fighting through uh, the cold weather. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe like this morning, you're like, oh gosh, I, I don't, man, I, I, I know of God. I, I'm, I'm seeing that maybe like God created me and he, he gifted me, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever actually become a child of God. I don't know that I've actually ever received that from, from him, maybe, maybe just this morning, because we're going to get into here in a second what it means, some of the implications, uh, the promises and privileges of being a child of God. Um, that's, that's what we're about to jump into. But maybe, maybe you're realizing right now, you're like, I, I'm, I don't have the promises and the privileges. Like I've actually never trusted Christ with my life. I've never, I've never stepped into that. Maybe just this morning, you, you need to do that. I want you to hear that. So if you're not a Christian, though, I want you to hear what we're about to get into. Okay, so what are the privileges and the promises of um, being in the kingdom of the Father? What are they? First thing that the scripture tells us is that as God's children, we have authority. We have authority as his kids. See, see think about this. We're, we're, not a, we're not God's slaves. Slaves don't have authority, right? Sons and daughters have authority. I mean, if you come into my house, my children will exert their authority over you, right? Or they'll attempt to. 
you know, quickly. Come to my room. Come do this. Let, let, me, let me show you this, right? Now, they're, they're, they're doing that under the heading of, of mom and dad. But if you come into my house, my children have a sense of authority. Do they not? They can take you to the fridge. Like they can get you something to drink. They can show you where the restroom is. Like if, like, not just anybody can do that. That's a, that's a, that's a privilege of a son and daughter. They have authority. The, the scriptures tell us that as God's children, we have what? We have authority. That we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. Right? That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of God's people. And, and so we have authority. We have authority over sin in our life. We have authority over the devil. We, we, we have that authority as sons and daughters. See, you can be, hear this, uh, you got to hear this. You can be in practice what you are positionally before the Father. Let me say it again, and I'll say it a different way. So you can be in practice what you are positionally before the Father. So positionally before the Father, you're holy. You're pure. When He sees you, He sees the Son. That is your position. You're a son and daughter. You can be practically what you are positionally. You can overcome strongholds of sin in your life. You can do it. You, you don't have to be bound by sin. You, you don't have to be bound by addictions. You, like you can be practically what you are positionally. As a son and daughter, you have that authority to do that. Now that takes work. That takes accountability. That takes community. That, that takes lots of things, but you can do it. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can actually do it. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin or to your past. You have authority as a son and daughter. Second thing, so we have authority. Some of the privileges and promises, we have authority. The second thing is we have intimacy with God. As a son and daughter, we have intimacy. My kids talk to me in a different way than you do, and that's a good thing. That would be awkward if you did, right? L listen, listen what he says here. Uh, Romans 8, verse 15. So it says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We'll talk about it in a second, but you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, Father was a term, was an intimate term that Jesus is, is bringing in here or that, that Paul's talking about here, introduced by Jesus. This, is a, this was not a, the, for, for Jesus' Jewish audience, when he, when he started, most likely when he said, our Father in, in heaven, in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, he most likely started with this term, Abba. This was not a, a term that the Jewish people were comfortable in using towards God the Father. Or e even, they wouldn't even, Father was like a, a term that would have been like wild to them. And so this is a, this is a term of, in, of, of closeness and intimacy where he says, no, no, when you, when you do that, you, you say, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, verse 6, it says, uh, be, because you are sons, 
God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. See, there's a, there's a type of intimacy that comes when we recognize God as God the Father. He's not God the, the judge, right? I was talking to a friend this week, and we were, um, we were at a restaurant right over here, actually, and uh, in, in having a, a burger and just kind of hanging out. And we were just kind of talking about uh, uh, pursuing intimacy with God and what that looks like and just the, even the way that we talk about our relationship with God. And, and, and we were just kind of talking about, you know, uh, sometimes we talk about, um, hey, I haven't did a good job reading the Bible. I haven't done a good job in my, you know, Christian faith. We, we kind of, when we're talking about maturity and process, we're, we're like, Man, I haven't done a great job with doing some of these things and, and, and that type of stuff. And, and we were just kind of talking about, what, what do you think the change would be like if we started in terms of thinking about our relationship with God, we simply didn't say, hey, I haven't read my Bible or I haven't pursued my Christian faith. What if we said, man, I've been lacking in intimacy with the Father this week. Like I've been lacking in intimacy with the Father. I haven't been close to him this week. I haven't talked to him this week. Wouldn't it be nice if, that, if we were people like that? that? That it wasn't necessarily based on the things that we were doing but it was based on the one that we belong to. Not about acts that, that we need to get done and boxes we need to check, but about a person that we need to spend time with. It's a type of intimacy that comes with being a son and daughter. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, was a pastor. He's kind of like one of my mentors from afar. He says this, he says, Abba was a word lisped by a little child. Let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father. It's a very strong word. And clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. What then does it apply? Obviously, real knowledge of God. God is no longer to us a distant God. He is not merely a God in whom, listen to this, He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, or doctrinally only. All this is possible to the one who's not a child of God at all. See, our worship and praying are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the Father and not the spontaneity, but confidence. Or not only spontaneity, but confidence. So the same way that my kid runs to me and res responds in spontaneity to seeing me. It's, it's not a trigger in his mind where he's like, oh, there's Father. So therefore, now if I see the Father, I must respond in this way. No, it's what? It's like, there's my dad. So I'll run to my dad and punch him, right? That's where we're at. Type of intimacy there, closeness there. Don't punch God. That will not go well for you. All right, here we go. I do want to say, anytime a parent adopts a kid, does the relationship when they adopt the kid end at the legal act of adoption? Have you ever, seen, have you ever followed um, one of those adoptive parents on like Instagram and, and, or whatever, wherever you're at? Have you ever seen that where, where they, they do like, they go through the legal act of adoption and, and they get it done and they're like, all right, see you later. No. No, it doesn't stop with the legal act of adoption. It builds an intimacy from there and closeness from there. God's not just trying to save you. 
and adopt you so that it ends there. Another type of intimacy. Okay, third thing, I gotta move along, we're almost done. Inheritance. So we have authority, we have intimacy. These are the privileges and the promises of God's people. We have authority, we have intimacy, and we have an inheritance. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. First observation there is our right to the inheritance, our, our right to be inheritance stands or falls on Christ's right to the inheritance. Right, it stands or falls. So you and I, the inheritance that we have it stands or falls on the fact that whether Christ was worthy to get an uh, inheritance. It says we're co-heirs with Christ. Again, he is the means by which we receive our adoption. And so we have an inheritance that is coming to us. Now, a couple of things that we see here quickly that we have to recognize is that we have an inheritance of suffering. There's a sense in which there that there's an inheritance of suffering. I mean, Paul says that indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. See, the Christian walk, what it means to be a son and daughter of God, means that there's a sense in which there's an inheritance of suffering and, and difficulty. And it, living here, right? You, you don't talk to people here and they go, oh, you're a Christian? That's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Do I think that's incredible. You must be full of intelligence. You're not a bigot. Right? You must love science. You know? That's wonderful. No, it's, it's, it's difficult. Like there, there, we, do a lot of, we do a lot of work here as God's people of breaking down unhealthy, um, unhealthy stereotypes of Christians, right? Like you're in the deficit here. It's not, you don't meet someone, most people, you don't meet someone and you tell them you're a Christian and it's like level ground. You're usually in the deficits. You're trying to overcome some things. You're being consistent with them. You're, you're like loving them well. You know, you're, you're trying to do all these things. I mean, this, this is just some of the work that you're doing here, but it's hard. There's a sense in which we, we identify with Christ in his suffering. We do that work. We're, we're a visible picture. Think about this, because Paul also says that um, we fill up where Christ's sufferings were lacking in another part of scripture. Basically what that means is that we serve as a physical picture of what it would look like if Jesus was living today. So we suffer as he suffers. We respond as he responded when he suffered. We help give that clear picture. All right, last thing and then I'm done and I'll pray. So we have, we have authority by being sons and daughters, that's some of the promises and the privileges. We have intimacy with God. We have an inheritance. And the final thing is we have assurance. Finally, we have assurance. Look, look back, verse 16, it says this. Well, two, two things here. I'll do 16, then we'll work back to 15. It says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So what does it say? That's a legal term for testify. So it says that the spirit testifies. It says, this one belongs to God. This one's God's child. They're, they're sealed. They're his, they belong to him. 
says that the Spirit testifies. The word his. Second thing I want you to look at, look back at verse 15. Here it is. This is the end. This is the end. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption. Now, what is he saying there? What's he saying? A spirit of adoption. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's not saying that you were under a spirit of slavery uh, per se, and now you're uh, under the slavery of adoption. Now you're, you're in a spirit of adoption. He's saying that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit didn't come into your life, and then therefore you became uh, a, 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 you received a spirit of slavery to continue to work for God. He, he's saying, no, you were actually adopted by God. You have a spirit of adoption. So see, slavery is based on what you do for your master. You were a, a means to an end as a slave. That, that's what you were. Your relationship with the one who owned you was based on how good of a worker you are. When you could not work, hear me, when you could not work, the master did what? Disposed of you. You were done. The relationship that the slave had with the slave owner was primarily based on the ability of the slave. Paul says, hear this. Paul says, you have been made a child of God. You do not have a spirit of slavery. You have a spirit of adoption. It's not based on your work, your merit, and your ability to do that. My love for my kids, I feel the love for my kids the most when they're the most disobedient. Like that's the moment where I feel the love for my kids the most is when they're disobedient. Why? Because that reminds me what? It reminds me, man, you're still my son and daughter. Like I'm still gonna love you. Like you responded, I'm still gonna love you. I'm still gonna care for you. I'm still gonna feed you and protect you. Why? Not, not because my son or daughter will still accomplish things for me, but it's because they're my son and daughter. 